You know, life as a uh, mystery is a uh, life as a mystery. Life as a missionary uh, can be a bit of a challenge. I think sometimes God calls the least of these in the earth to do His work because He gets maximal glory out of it. I certainly view myself. The idea of coming to Norway was exciting, but terrifying. Exciting, but terrifying. You know, some of you uh, are here with business, you know, and you come with uh, a job, right, and a paycheck that's going to come to you. As a missionary, when we felt the call, you don't get any of those things. Um, So you have to trust that the Lord will provide. And uh, one of the scariest things for me as the husband and the provider was, how am I going to support my family? And I, you know, before I came here, I was an associate pastor in, in the States and we were moving into a new denomination because I was coming out of a free church background, moving into a Presbyterian background. Um, I didn't know a lot of people in the denomination yet as we were getting started. So not only were we going to be raising support to come to Norway, but we were also in a new denomination. And um, all of my connections were in another denomination. So it was a really scary time. And I remember at one point we were, we were living off the sale of our house and off of some of our retirement savings that we had. And we were just watching everything go down, 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 down. And it felt very dark <laughs> and hopeless. I remember one Christmas season um, before uh, a few years before we came, just kind of terrified and just kind of I had nothing, nothing left. I had my wife and my children and I was living with my parents again at age 37 or something like that. It's like, was the Lord going to provide? Would he, would he take care of us? And that January, all of a sudden, boom, where we, we went from just being like, okay, how are we going to like live and put food on the table? All of a sudden, the Lord started bringing the support in for the, for the work and to come. And as, as it were, like the fortunes were restored. The, the ability to come and live were restored. And Zephaniah is about this idea of the fortunes of God's people being restored. They are in a very difficult, when I say God's people, I'm going to speak even more specifically than just the external people of Israel. But as the prophets go on, we see this concept of a remnant of the true people of God that truly love the Lord and worship the Lord, as opposed to those who are externally known as the people of God of Judah and Israel. And they are in a very difficult time. They're longing for God to remove the evil in their midst. They're longing for God to make things right, to free them from their oppressors, and to restore their fortunes. And Zephaniah is going to end with this promise that God will restore their fortunes. But it's going to happen through a pretty rough and rocky road. As we've been working through the prophets, as well as the historical books before that, uh, we know that the end of uh, Israel's time as a nation and Judah's time as a nation did not go so well. 
And the, the reason why is that the external visible people of God had broken covenant with the Lord time and time again. This is a period where even the priests are worshiping foreign gods in the temple of the Lord. Where the, even the priests are uh, allowing heinous and immoral acts to happen in their country and even within the temple. Just imagine how you would feel if you love the Lord and you're beholding even the religious clerics and the kings and the rulers celebrating evil. In some ways, it's not that different from today. But there will come a day, and that's what this book is about, where God's going to wipe all of that stuff away. And he is going to restore the fortunes of his people. We're going to look at Zephaniah this morning in two parts. First, we're going to see that the day of the Lord will be a day of total destruction. See that the day of the Lord is going to be a day of total destruction. And then secondly, we'll see that that same day will also be a day of complete restoration. So total destruction and then complete restoration. So let's begin with the first point. The day of the Lord will be a day of total destruction. Uh, One commentator said that Zephaniah, more than any other book, proportionally focuses on the day of the Lord. The other prophet would be Joel that has a big emphasis on the day of the Lord as well. But Zephaniah uh, is exclusively about this idea of this day that is coming. And this day we read about starting in the second verse of chapter 1 where we see that everything is going to go. We read there in verse 2, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. We see more so as he goes into detail. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests those who bow down on the roofs to the host of heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. And what we see here is that God has told us that a day is coming when everything is going away, even the animals, man and beast, the fish, of the sea, everything is going to be destroyed. And the reason for this 
is the sin of man. The sin of man. And in particular focus here in chapter 1 is Judah's own sin. The inhabitants of Jerusalem themselves. Those who are bowing not the knee to the Lord, but to the knee of Baal. Baal worship was the predominant worship in the ancient Near East, and it encompassed many gods. And there were also Asherah, which we will uh, talk about a little bit later. These were uh, fertility cults that uh, were happening. And actually, if you, I don't know if you've been studied in university or elsewhere, you study the history of religions, you will notice that there is a stark contrast between all of the religions of the world and Judeo-Christianity. That fertility religion is at the heart of all other religions in the world. I was uh, in Ireland over the break visiting family, and my brother-in-law runs a faith-based travel company and so he always takes us around to some spots when we when we see him and he shows us areas of uh, of Ireland that have particular significance to the faith or religion and he took us uh, after he picked us up from the airport to this this one place called uh, a portal tomb the Fornox portal tomb and it's this this mound so it's got this beautiful, you know, it's Ireland, beautiful green grass, and then you have this mound, and then you go into the mound, and they, when they excavated this mound, they discovered uh, hundreds and hundreds of, uh, of humans buried there. And for the, the Irish, before Christianity, they believed that the, uh, the, the kind of eternal resting place was under the ground, and they believed that like the fertile crops that came up was, was given to them from those who lived under, under the earth. So they had these portal tombs that, that are like signify you going into the ground to kind of the, your, your resting place. Um, but at, at any rate, in, one, in this portal tomb, they also have this, this carved face, which they believe is the earliest carved face uh, that they know of in Ireland that dates all the way back to the times of Abraham. So it's very, a very, very old stone. So over the break then, after seeing that, I, I decided to do a little bit of reading up on Celtic religion and Druidism, the Druids who were there before, and what St. Patrick, the, the first Christian missionaries there, was, was up against. And what, we, what I learned there is that... What they were doing in their magical, sorcery, pagan practices was functionally the exact same thing that Israel is doing when they're walking away from the Lord. They're engaged in, uh, in cultic prostitution, which they believed would cause the gods to bring them fertility of children and of land. They were sacrificing their children to Molech, thinking that, well, if you give the firstborn to Molech, then he'll give you a fruitful life. 
It's the same thing that the Druids and the, and the Celts were doing before Christianity, that they were, that were giving their called foundation sacrifices. If you, if you ha- build a building, you would have a human sacrifice, whether it was a child or a, a slave, someone captured in war. And there, there's lots of different tribes in Ireland warring against each other. You would, you would sacrifice that victim to bring fertility. And you look at the, the religions around the world, you see very similar patterns, really, because ultimately there's one evil source behind all of it. But the same thing that you can study in, in Ireland or, or in England or in Europe in general, um, my next on my list is to read more about the Teutonic religions that go up into Norway, but that's for another day. Um, but there's this idea that we can manipulate God by doing certain things. And this rank evil is happening among God's people, the external people of God, those, the people of Abraham, that God called out from all the peoples of the earth. And because of that, God is going to take out everything. In verse 7, the Lord uh, warns and mocks his people. He says, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on that day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold. That would be, it's a superstitious practice. And those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. So he's looking on these people making evil sacrifices and says, behold, I will make a sacrifice. But that sacrifice is going to be the destruction of these wicked people. He's going to bring their evil back on their on their own heads. There is a promise that God will destroy Judah's enemies. In chapter 2, they're called together and humble them and to seek the Lord and to humble themselves before the time because the Philistines are going to be deserted. We read about that in Gaza in chapter 2, verse 4, for Gaza shall be deserted and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. And Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. We down in verse nine we see also the other enemies of God's people from Moab and the Ammonites. In verse twelve, Cushites, and in verse thirteen, the Assyrians. All of them are going down. And one might think then at that time that Judah's safe. But then to reiterate the point in chapter 3, we also learn that God has his sights on Jerusalem as well. Chapter 3, verse 1, Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. 
she does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle and treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. You know, it's striking reading these words and the depth of Jerusalem's evil in light of the fact that Zephaniah is preaching during the days of Josiah. And do any of you remember what Josiah is remembered for? Josiah brought reform to Jerusalem. In 2 Kings 23, we read about this reform. They actually had misplaced the word of God. They rediscovered the book of the covenant. And in chapter 23 of 2 Kings, we read about how they discovered the word and they had all the people from the smallest to the smallest to the greatest gathered together. They heard the word of the Lord and they made a covenant of renewal with him. That Josiah had the priests gather all the vessels that were made for Baal and for Asherah and for all the host of heaven. We're told they had, a, they had a, an idol for every, for every imagined being. And they were in the temple of the Lord. So he had them take out all of that stuff and burn it. He deposed the evil priests. He had them cut down the Asherah poles. The Asherah poles were symbols of uh, genitalia. I'll put it that way. Imagine that being in the church and people going to do evil things there. Those were in the temple of the Lord. He had that brought out. We're told that he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes. So it wasn't just female prostitutes, but male prostitutes in this evil fertility religion that they're perverting the worship of Yahweh with. We're told that he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. All of that's going on by the visible people of God. It's the abortion of their day, right? We have priests that call abortion good. We need another Josiah's reform in the house of God. But anyways, this is going on. He, they had worship dedicated to the sun, It's probably coming out of Egyptian worship. We're told that he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun. And he burned the chariots of the sun with fire. So he goes on and does all these things while Zephaniah is preaching. And yet, there's a lesson to be learned here. That Just because revival might go on, it doesn't mean that everybody's going to get it. 
Judah was still so perverse that the Lord is going to cast them out of his sight. And we know that he did just that in 586 when he sent Babylon to lay siege against Jerusalem. And in uh, 56 BC, sorry, 586 BC, they're destroyed. They're carried off. All of the, the riches of the temple are gone. The Assyrians and the Babylonians made a practice of redistributing their enemies so that they couldn't go back to their land and revive it. And so they're all carried away. And while on the pages of history, this looks like an evil pagan nation doing this of its own will, this is God. In Second Kings 23, after we read about this, revi- this revival, we read, And the Lord said, I will remove Judah out of my sight as I have removed Israel. And I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. So the Lord takes God's people out, the visible external people of God, many of whom never to return again. This is the day of the Lord that Zephaniah writes about this coming judgment. But as we understand how God spoke through the prophets, there's a double fulfillment because there's a greater day of the Lord still to come when these things promised will be fully fulfilled and consummated and it'll be far more than the death of of many people and the reallocation of people to another place. We are told in Second Peter that the heavens existed long ago, Second Peter 3, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And Peter goes on in uh, in verse 10 as well and says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So these promises that God will wipe everything away, man and beast and fish, and everything's going to go. Peter tells us that there's a greater day coming when this creation is going to burn. It's going to be destroyed to make way for the new creation. The things that we love to look at, the sea and the mountains and the rivers, and the trees, and the wildlife, all of which, as we've sung this morning, 
bring glory to God. They, they preach the glory of God. Even these things are going to be burned up and dissolved, as Peter says, to make way for the new creation. Christian commentators take some different views on Peter's and uh, what Peter means by these things. But I would uh, appeal to you to think about your own body as, a, as an illustration of what's going to happen. Unless the Lord returns in our lifetime in which we will be immediately glorified, we undergo a death. Right? Death comes before renewal. Our body turns back to dust. And to be sinless, we need to be glorified. And so whether that means that God is going to destroy every molecule and purify it and rebuild it, or that there's going to be some kind of cataclysmic transformation, that's up to God how he does it. But the point being is that everything that has a taint of evil on it will be burned, extinguished, and we will receive both a new purified body, but also a new purified creation that we can live in. That this earthly plane is but a shadow of, but a faint glimpse of what is truly real. So that is the day that is coming. The day of the Lord will be a day of total destruction. Let's now look at the second uh, point of the message and of Zephaniah this morning. That the day of the Lord will be a day of complete restoration. The day of the Lord will be a day of complete restoration. As with all the prophets, there is not only the real promise of destruction, but there is also the promise of hope. And restoration. And we see this in Zephaniah in a f- several places where the idea of a remnant is going to surface. The idea of a remnant. We see this in a lot of the prophets. The remnant you could use as another term for the elect, that there's going to be a remnant of people that God has preserved out of his people that are his true people. Maybe let me say that again. You have, the, you have, and it's true in the church as well, you have a visible people that visibly they bear the marks of the people of God. But that doesn't mean that all of them are saved. As we see in Zephaniah in the history of Israel, there are many kings and priests who wore the name of Yahweh, of the people of God, and yet they were wicked and they were not truly God's people. And as the prophets develop, we have this, this theme of the remnant that emerges. Uh, you, you read something like the Lord saying, I have reserved 7,000 people who will not bow the knee to Baal. You see statements like that where the Lord is preserving a remnant who are his true people. So this idea of a mixed community is very important to understand. There's the visible 
people of God, which is a mixed community, and there's the invisible people of God, which is the true people of God, or this remnant idea that comes about. And what we read about in Zephaniah is that this remnant is going to inherit everything. The remnant will inherit everything. For example, with the land of the Philistines, we read in verse 7 of chapter 2 that the seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze, and in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening. For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. Here's this theme of restoration of fortunes coming about. So God is going to actually give the land of the surrounding nations to his people. This, for example, from a a political standpoint, is why the Gaza Strip in Israel is so hotly contested. Because the state of Israel, and to the degree that they do not worship Jesus, they are not the true Israel, but the state of Israel can look at a verse like Zephaniah 2.7 and say, this is our land, because God's giving it to us. Okay? We are told later that in verse 9, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. So here again, we're seeing God is going to redistribute the land and the possessions within the land to this remnant. More so in chapter 3, verse 9, we read, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve them with one accord. And here we have a promise that the remnant the people that's going to receive this new blessing will not just be Israelites, but there's going to be a conversion among the nations as well. That's going to come about at the day of the Lord. Verse 11, On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For when I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid." There's going to be a new peoples in this new creation from many nations and from the remnant of Israel as well. And this day is not only going to be a day of the restoration of all things, but a day of joy, a day of celebration. Some of the most beautiful words penned in the Old Testament 
are found here in the Minor Prophets, and particularly here in Zephaniah. We read, the Lord, in verse 15, chapter 3, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast. And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. And again, as we think about this promise that the day of the Lord will be a day of complete restoration, there is, again, a double fulfillment The Lord used the pagan king Cyrus to call God's people back to Israel and to rebuild the temple. And he richly furnished them with with money and financing and protection to do that. And there was a sense where they got their land back. But as we come into the times of the New Testament, we know that they didn't get everything that Zephaniah 3 was not fully fulfilled. And that's because we were waiting for a greater king to come. We were waiting for God to send his son. When we read in chapter 3, verse 15, the king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. Yahweh is in your midst. The fulfillment of that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came to tabernacle to dwell with his people, God himself as the king. And then when the king is there, and when he returns in the greater fulfillment of his second coming, there will be no reason to fear. Think about a little child when it is lost from its parent. It's terrifying. And think about the comfort of the, of the newborn resting in the mother's arms when all is well, right? That's how it's going to be for us, the Lord in our midst. You shall never again fear. When Jesus came to earth, He perplexed a lot of people. But he proclaimed some pretty mighty things. And at one point in his ministry, he went up on the mountain and the disciples gathered around him. And he opened his mouth, we're told in Matthew 5, and said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus preached the themes of the prophets. But many were perplexed. Was Jesus just a great teacher, one who taught with greater authority than the scribes and the Pharisees, or was he something more? Even John the Baptist wasn't quite sure about who Jesus is. Just as many today are not quite sure who Jesus is. We read in Matthew 11, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. And the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. One commentator wrote that Christ's own ministry of mercy, of which he is fulfilling these promises in Zephaniah, as well as the other promises in the prophets in the Old Testament at large, Christ's own ministry of mercy proved that he was inaugurating this eschatological age of rescue. When Jesus came in his first coming, he's kicking off, he's launching the last times, this age of mercy. Remember that when Peter was writing about the destruction and judgment of all things, he also said, don't count God's slowness uh, as slowness. For a, a day to the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. And God is not wishing that any would perish. And so even this prolonged season, where for us as the church, uh, particularly us as the church in places of the world that is brutally persecuted, it doesn't feel like God's mercy. But in God's eyes it is, because he's doing the work through churches like ours and through people like you and me to spread the gospel so that he can gather his people from every tribe and tongue and nation to experience the eschatological mercy of God. So that they can experience God singing over them. We have this beautiful picture of, it's almost a marriage picture, 
We, of course, the, the church can be described as the bride of Christ, of course. We have this beautiful picture of when Christ is in our midst, the Lord in our midst. We, we read in chapter 3, verse 17 of Zephaniah, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. God's patience in bringing the great and final day of the Lord is for mercy. That his people from every tribe and tongue and nation can experience the love of their Savior singing over them, rejoicing over them. That is the day, my friends, that's been inaugurated, kicked off, launched when Jesus first came. That is the day when Jesus returns, when the fortunes will be restored. Zephaniah closes after this singing. And at that time I will bring you in, at that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. And that day faith will be made sight. And in that day, the new creation will exist forever, as we like to say, world without end. Amen. So let's look to our Savior Jesus. Let's consider even these days of struggle as mercy. And let's use them wisely to share the hope of the only name in heaven that can save, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray.